Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. If you enjoyed the opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring My Adore. And you can download it on any of your favorite music platforms. And they are donating proceeds to Alzheimer's Speaks. So we would, we would love your support there. It's a great song, really uplifting. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks, we're about sound information, not just sound bites. And we've been doing this since 2011. So we are raising voices all around the world at all ages and stages of life pertaining to dementia and caregiving, research um, and services, um, products and tools as well. We'd love to have you be one of our guests. So just contact me by going to alzheimerspeaks.com. There's a big contact button at the top and um, shoot me an email or give me a holler. I'd love to talk with you. Now, today's conversation is going to be on COVID-19, and we've got some great experts around the world that we're going to be speaking with. But first, I want to give a shout out to the Memory Cafe directory. They are now highlighting virtual memory cafes. So feel free to go there and find one. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be by you. We do ours the second and the fourth Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. Central Time, and you are more than welcome to be with us. On April 30th, we are going to be doing another sing-along. There was just a high, high demand for us to do that, so I can't wait for that to happen. In the meantime, please like, click, and share as you're listening to this very special show, and let's introduce our guests. I'm Lori LeBay with Alzheimer's Speaks, and your host, and today we are doing a show on COVID-19, and we're going to be talking with people around the world, find out how they're coping and adapting to all these changes when it comes to uh, their lives and the work that they do. So first, Ian, if you don't mind introducing yourself. Okay, thank you very much, Laurie, and uh, a good evening, as it is from the United Kingdom, to all your listeners. Uh, I feel really privileged to be part of this broadcast, so uh, um I'm Ian Sheriff. I'm the Academic Partnership Lead for Dementia at the uh, Faculty of Health, uh, uh, Dentistry, Medicine and Allied Health in the University of Plymouth down here in the southwest of England. So my role there is research, uh, teaching um, and outside of that I chair the Prime Minister's Rural Dementia Group for Dementia and I chair the Prime Minister's um, dementia group with the air transport group sorry um, and I also very privileged to chair several other big groups uh, nationally um, and including the uh, lorry will know this uh, the dementia worldwide group and I think that's a, a really uh, impressive group and some of the things that are being done around the world and we learn from each other so um, that's me and uh, I look forward to talking to you tonight. Thanks, Ian. Dorinda, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thank you, Lori. I am Dorinda Kruger. I am an executive director of Savage Senior Living in Savage, Minnesota. My career after college has always been in healthcare. So I've been in the acute setting, long-term care, and now experiencing the assisted living side. And I've actually had more exposure and experience with those individuals that have memory loss. So um, my career has spanned many areas and is just, it's fun to see how we're adapting at this time, I, for lack of better terms, adapting. 
Um, so yes, just thank you for allowing me to be on today. Wonderful, thank you. And Gus, do you wanna go ahead and introduce yourself? Hello, Laurie, it's great to, to be with you again. My name's Gus Noble. I'm the president of Caledonia Senior Living and Memory Care. We are the principal charity of the Chicago Scots, the oldest uh, charity, the oldest 501c3 in Illinois, been around this year for 175 years, which may not uh, seem like a long time to some of the, the listeners you uh, have around the world, but here in Illinois, that's, that's uh, certainly a long time. I have not been the president, however, since 1845. Uh, I've been the president since uh, 2004. Uh, you may detect the remnants of a Scottish accent here. I moved to Chicago in 1992 and worked for the British government and then for the government of Wales. And in 2004, was uh, fortunate enough to, to uh, receive a, a call from a member of our board and they said, we think you would do really well as the president of this organization that supports uh, a nursing home uh, in the western suburbs of Chicago and it was the best move I ever made. I feel that this is why I moved to Chicago and this is why I uh, every day have passion for the field of caring despite what is happening out there in the world in fact because of what's happening out there in the world I think now more than ever the, the people who have heard the calling that clearly you and your listeners have heard uh, our time is now. I so agree and it was so nice to be able to meet you about a year ago and see your community and what you're doing. Um, I haven't had the chance to to meet personally my other two guests, but hopefully in time that will all happen. Now, before we get into COVID, I always like to just get a, a baseline for our audience. And if you don't mind sharing with us, and I'm going to start with Gus on this one, if you've been personally touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends. I have in my own family and friends, uh, my personal and professional life have been impacted by uh, dementia um, um, greatly. My grandmothers, both my grandmothers lived with dementia in their later years, both very, very dear to me. Um, uh, they, they clearly remembered me whenever I'd go back home to visit them in the northeast of England where they both lived. Um, they, they, they knew I was part of their lives, um, but perhaps didn't recognize that I had been away in Chicago for all these years that I've lived here. And so it, it enabled me to, to kind of still occupy a place of affection in their lives. And they certainly made an impact on me. Um, I, I hear the voice of a member of my board talk about his own experience. And as I, I heard him describe how he would go back to Scotland to visit his mother, his mother said, you look like a little boy I used to know. And he said it was both crushing for him and it was um, empowering for him at the same time. And as he described it, this really resonated with me. And, and I thought this is exactly how I felt with my grandmothers. They may not remember us, but we must always remember them. And so that's, that's something that I've taken with me. Great. Thank you. Dorinda, how about you? Have you been personally touched? I have actually not been personally touched. Um, I have not had any family members or close friends that have ever been impacted um, with dementia. So my um, experience with it has all been through my career and seeing how it impacts all populations, um, all age groups. And it's been a an interesting experience for me, just allowing myself to gain the knowledge and it's a continuous learning process of how do you adapt and how do you change and um, how do you just really get to know the person that they are now versus who they were before. Um, that's one of the biggest challenges is that families want you to know, I wish you would have known them when and we get to know them now. And that's a pleasure for us to be able to do, to guide them through those um, end stages. Wonderful, thank you. And Ian? 
what I'd like, well, my, I don't have any family that have been, uh, have had dementia, but I've definitely had lots of friends. Uh, and my road into the work that I do now, I started oh, uh, uh, 25 years, my first career was in the playing with aeroplanes. And then I came out of that and came into the university and uh, did my social work degree. And um, it was through that that then I started to uh, work with people with um, disabilities, hidden disabilities, etc. Uh, and I suppose I became a campaigner then. Um, then I worked my way up through social care um, to... Um, you know, I led the whole local government reorganization down here in the southwest and ran services for people with um, hidden disabilities. So that set the scene for me to see not only from a point of view of providing services, but also from friends who um, had dementia. Um, and then that took me into the role of uh, the Alzheimer's Society here in the United Kingdom. And 20 odd years ago, I started to um, reform, restructure the Alzheimer's Society down here in Devon because it had, um, I suppose, reached its time then. And then I spent then six years nationally on the board of the Alzheimer's Society. But my main thrust has been campaigning, uh, not only local, but national uh, politicians, etc., to improve services for people with dementia. Wonderful. Thank you. So let's get into what you guys are doing right now. And I'm going to start, I'm going to start local with Dorinda. If you don't mind telling us what's going on in your, in your life and in your community that you manage. <laughs> so locally it's been, today I just wanted to focus on the positive things that have been going on. We all hear that there's a lack of PPE and um, things that have been going wrong, but I want to talk about the things that we um, as a community and um, have seen that have been going right. And so something that we're proud of is that early on, we already started talking about um, what is what is COVID. And that's because the residents back in March had the fear of what if they had a whole bunch of what ifs. And so what better way than to gather them in a room, let them just answer, ask questions, answer them as best as we could just to help alleviate some of that and knowing that it's a safe place for them to express what they're feeling. Um, and not, not only that, and just making it a safe environment for the staff to express how they're feeling. Because as you can imagine, we've had to adapt in many ways as to how we're changing, how we've had to change our visiting restrictions as you know, we're not allowing visitors in the building um, unless there are other additional health healthcare providers or um, family members with uh, residents that are at end of life. So that's been a challenge and an obstacle that we've gone through. But what I found is that knowing that we, the staff and the residents have the relationship that they have, it's been easier for our location to adapt because they have that trust in us. They know that we'll be here. They know that they'll, they're, we're here for them to rely on. And we're just a familiar face and they know that we're working and doing as much as we can um, as a team just to provide the care and services that they need and the socialization that they need every day. So just to try to bring a little bit of normalcy in their routine. Um, but it's also made us think outside the box. It's make, made us look at what resources do we have internally. So we've had to tune into some of the leader, other leadership team members' gifts that they have and allow them to also go out and about and provide activities to residents at their doorways. So um, what we try to do is the meals, meals, they still get the same meals that they always had. Um, we still give them an activity calendar every week, even though they're just adapted to them being in their rooms. And so I think all of those pieces together and looking at um, what we've all done to make it a smooth transition and as um, harmless as possible, I should, for lack of better terms, is just, it's just allowing us to continue to create an environment where they feel safe. And they know that we're trying to do everything we can to make sure that they are safe and healthy. I have a couple of questions for you. Do you feel that 
um, as, as a team, both staff and then staff to residents, that COVID has made you stronger and more collaborative? Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's allowed us to open up and be vulnerable with each other, especially regarding the disease and, um, or the condition. And just knowing how it's impacted not only the staff, they're hypersensitive, knowing that they don't want to be the ones to bring it every day. And I think that's the fear that we have to eliminate and continue to talk about is, you know what, if we have all of these things that we've put into place, we've taken these precautions, we want to keep everybody healthy, we're following the guidelines that have been given us, you know what, we will be even stronger and we'll keep our residents healthy. You know, I love when you said about it's allowed everyone to feel vulnerable. And I know that, you know, the butterfly model really pushes that and says, you know, you don't know what it's like to be in their shoes until you yourself have exposed yourself to being vulnerable. And and I do, I, I think that that's a shift, not just within communities and people dealing with dementia, but I think around the world, just in terms of the appreciation for our, not only our healthcare workers and our police and fire and emergency workers, but the grocery stores, the, the gas stations. I mean, there's just, everyone is, I think, valuing people better and more. And, and I think that that's a, a really cool thing. Now, do you do any support groups or anything with families? And if so, how is, how is that going? Directly on our location, we do not have any support groups for the families. But what we have been doing is we've been sending out more frequent communication through email to the uh, family members to keep them up to date on what are we doing, how are things changing, um, specifically at a corporate level, but also at just our location so that they're familiar with. These are the things that we're still doing and everybody is just working as hard as we can to make sure everybody stays um, healthy. So for the most part, that's how we're reaching out. One thing that we have discussed as a team is, especially regarding our residents that are in memory care. So we're entering, we're at the week, end of week five. So Monday will start week six. So we take it day by day and look at each day as being um, a goal that we achieve. And what we've encountered and what we feel is going to be the most difficult is when the families are going to be able to visit their loved ones that have had cognitive loss, whether it be in the independent assisted living side or in memory care, that they're going to see a different person because that within those six weeks, any kind of cognitive changes, they can happen rapidly. So who they saw six weeks ago might not be who they're going to see now. And so just made us sit back and know that we're going to have to do some more additional education and explaining to the families that this is just normal. Everything that's ex being experienced is normal. They just miss that piece of their life. And that's going to be the hardest obstacle is just the feelings behind not being to be able there to see those changes. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're doing extra communication with the families. What, what I'm seeing out there is they really need um, not just a, a photo sent every now and then or the, the opportunity to video chat with their person or talk outside the window. They need education and support. And I know that communities are really um, graveling with, you know, staff as lean and lean and as mean as they can be right now in terms of functioning at the highest level. And so for a lot of communities, you know, I've talked to, they say, well, that's really not a priority, but I, I, I really beg communities to, to look at that seriously because these families are so distraught. I mean, I can't tell you how many I've talked to where their voices are just cracking they are scared to death. They're going to die. Their loved one's going to die. They're not going to be able to say goodbye or just what you said. They're not going to be in the same place that they were. And so we have to get them to realize that none of us are ever in the same place we were. It's, you know, we're, we're all a moving target. We always have been. And so we need, but we need to give them support and education. And so even if it's a, a you know, virtual support group or whatever, or tapping into individuals like myself, there's lots of other people that if we can set up times 
you know, basically it's pushing out a, a you know, an email and that can be handled for you. Um, so that it doesn't, doesn't, um, stress staff even more, but I, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that there are so many concerns right now, as we're hearing in the news with senior housing and that I think it's going to have a great impact in the future. So it's critical that we brand properly and we inform people of all the good things that are going and we support them through this very emotional and vulnerable time so that we can preserve the great work that you guys are doing. Um, you know, I've had conversations with many that say, you know, I want to pull my loved one out and you got to kind of slow them down and say, okay, you put them in, in a placement for a reason, you know, or they decided to go there for a reason. They needed more assistance. Chances are that has increased over time. And now you want to pull them back and, you know, you could be infecting one another. You don't know because there's not enough tests to go around. There's so many elements and they're like, well, I'll hire somebody. Well, good luck with that. You know, it's hard to find staff. It was hard before, but now it's going to be even harder. And I, I think getting them to understand even the mental health piece of all of this um, is, is really, really critical. And then again, changing routines. And there's so, so many layers with all of this. Um, now, with um, do you do like do you have any like memory cafes or anything that you do? No, we do not. We do have a dimensions program through Ebenezer that we have implemented into our memory care area, and then um, we do have once a month where we'll have a social gathering with family members of those individuals that live in memory care, um, just to allow them to meet and greet each other the different activities with their loved ones, whether it's having an ice cream social or music, and just being able to bond on a different level. Um, we've not been successful with the support groups um, that we've tried to hold on site. So if we do give people guidance, it would be to the Alzheimer's Association. Yeah. And, and I, would, um, I would just encourage, and again, I encourage all communities to reconsider that because people are at a loss and what I've seen through the virtual connections is incredible. And those that are, you know, I, I have a virtual um, memory cafe that anyone is open to come to. We do it the second and the fourth, fourth Wednesday of the month at one o'clock. Um, and I know others are starting to do that. Memorycafedirectory.com is listing those that are doing them as well. Um, but just to give them a base. And then some are connecting, you know, and again, it depends on technology. It depends on staffing and timing. All of those things are critical. But many times the person with dementia, even living in a community and their loved one can be part. And it gives them that hour, even if they're not talking all the time, just to see one another and just have that, that sense of calm and, and kind of normal again in their in their life so thank you so much for sharing it sounds like you're doing some really cool cool things Gus how about you what are, what are you guys doing at Caledonia I go back to the day I listened to Governor Pritzker here in Chicago or in Illinois give the the first press conference uh, about how COVID-19 was impacting everyone in Illinois and I, I sat like everyone in the state and around the world and kind of felt a bit stunned and helpless as I was listening to a governor who was clearly frustrated and, and I felt myself grow angry and then I, that anger turned into kind of helplessness and I realized I wasn't anger, angry at the governor but I was angry because I shared his frustration that here we were um, trying to find our own way more or less through this really quick run-up that, that we were given before huge restrictions were placed on our communities. And I realized that I was not helpless. Um, I realized that I have a voice and I have the voice of the oldest charity in Illinois. And next door to our senior community here, there are several others with whom we have close friendships. Plymouth Place in LaGrange, Cantata, which is the, the British home just along the road in Brookfield and in Burr Ridge, King Brevard House. 
Uh, and I wrote to the CEOs of those organizations and said, guys, I figured out that collectively we represent over 400 years worth of service to seniors. We employ 750 people and we serve currently 1,200 seniors and their families. The governor will listen to us. So we each signed a letter, co-signed this letter, saying to the governor that we see what he's doing to secure PPP and advocate on behalf of seniors in Illinois to secure more testing. The point of the letter was to say the best way to protect the health and safety of the people living in long-term care is to protect the health and safety of the people working in long-term care. We're all in this together, literally. Um, I'm happy to say that on the back of that letter, we were introduced to some people who helped us secure PPE and some, some testing uh, for, for our local community here. And so far as what COVID-19 has meant uh, at Caledonia Senior Living, for, for 100 years, we've never really locked our front door, certainly during the day. It's been a little community set in the woods where people were free to come and go and the feelings were really of home and family. And as I say to people here, for 175 years, this organization has delivered life's most important things, home, family, and love. And despite the restrictions that COVID-19 has caused us both because of guidance and directives from government, from uh, local authorities, and indeed from ourselves, despite, perhaps even because of those, especially because of those restrictions, we have to continue to deliver those things, however, however we can. We, we took a decision one week ago, which continues to bear heavy on the board and me, uh, and that was to extend the shelter in place uh, more um, intensively ac across our community. Until Thursday last week, we had been of course, observing social distancing, but we had been having staff and, and residents or residents take meals in our, our communal dining rooms and have activity against observing social distancing in our, our living rooms. But we took the decision that, that we needed to shelter in place by having residents remain in their rooms for meals and for all activities. And Governor Pritzker here has a phrase which kind of informed as we are thinking as we made that decision. He said that his job is to protect lives and livelihoods. But in the next breath, he says, but it's very difficult to have a livelihood if you don't have a life. Um, and so therefore, the, the decision that we took was, yes, observing that we must always be mindful of mental health, social health, and emotional health, but we have to protect physical health at this particular time. So in that context, what do home, family, and love look like in the more restricted environment we have? And what I encourage staff to do, and I meet with staff on a daily basis, and I say to the staff, now more than ever, if we're dealing with a restricted physical environment that is less home-like and more institutional, where it's very hard to place person over system, we must, as the frontline caregivers, indeed every essential worker who is currently here uh, behind the locked door of our, our, our home, we must carry with us home, family and love as it's defined by the residents. So that personal connection we have, whether it's to do with life enrichment, whether it's to do with the delivery of food, the maintenance staff coming in, everybody has to really pay attention to delivering the, the personal connection uh, that the residents will, will not feel commodified by. I hate to use that word, but it's, it's, it's the danger of the environment we have for ourselves is the commodification of people. We have to make sure we see each um, engagement with residents as an opportunity to, to de deliver home, family and love, those feelings to, to residents. And how do we do that? Well, well last week, we, we uh, were very fortunate that a donor helped us install a new um, TV 
smart TV with uh, the ability to stream live video into the rooms of every resident. And we asked a, a famous actor who is part of our community to virtually call Bingo. And it was a very simple thing. He was there. Uh, I was talking to him on an iPad connection. He was calling the numbers. It was beamed into the rooms of all the residents who each had some kind of noisemaker, a whistle or a rattle or something. And as the bingo numbers were called and the various people were winning, I was able to communicate back to Nick, who then on the TV recognized the residents themselves. It was a Frankly, it was a bit uh, haphazard as we were doing it, but that helped inform a sense of fun that was both fun and funny. And it really gave a new lift to the community and allowed people to see that there are connections that can be made beyond the ones that we would perhaps have relied on before where we would bring in an entertainer and physically that person would be in a room with the residents playing the guitar or singing and so on. Um, we hope to get back to those days, of course, but just because those days aren't here around us right now doesn't mean to say we, we uh, put the cap on our pen and say no more. We have to redefine how we deliver these things. So we have um, our connections back to Scotland. There is a fiddle player in Scotland who has agreed to perform a personal concert for the residents. We know that there are people here locally in Chicago that have jobs in museums where they can take us on a virtual tour around a museum uh, here in Chicago. There is a famous uh, chef in Scotland who is going to make Mother's Day treats for our families and across a Zoom connection we can have both residents and families enjoy an afternoon tea and be part of a process of making shortbread or, or something. And um, Speaking of that family uh, connection, which you rightly bring up, Laurie, I feel of the, the promise we made to the families and the residents that we will deliver the, the, the type of things that we always have not been known to deliver has been compromised. I feel that the residents and their families are really, really uh, at risk of suffering um, in ways that, that perhaps they wouldn't have previously. So we need to do all we can to connect residents to their families. And of course, FaceTime and video connections and sharing of photographs and window time are important, but we want to give um, families a sense of what's happening behind the locked door. So for the first time we hosted a family town hall uh, by Zoom with, with families and I asked all of our department heads to be present on the call to answer any questions or concerns that families may have had. And it gave uh, an opportunity and, and really helped bond every part of our community, whether it's staff, our board took part, families, um, generations of families were there. And, and we really felt a connection and a sense that we're in this together and, and through this we we uh, we will come out better. Well, I I love the idea of the town hall meeting. I think that's because one of the things that people are saying is we're not they're not feeling like they're being communicated from from the federal level on down, you know. And so they're kind of picking and choosing. And so I think that that is is wonderful. And again, some some places are doing are doing a fantastic job, but there are many out there that are really hurting. And I think one of the most powerful things about having that group together is that sense of, I'm not alone. Even if you're com connecting with family on one-on-one, -on -one, they're still feeling isolated. Like this is just their problem and others aren't going through this. But when they hear that others are feeling the same way, even though it's sad and it's scary and it's frightening, it's like, oh, it's normal. I'm not the only one feeling like this. We, this is this is a normal part of the process. I, I think um, too, you know, if if it's possible to do, um, you know, the adjustments like you've done with entertainment, I think that's fantastic. I personally did a not me singing, but I I facilitated a sing along, and we can have you know 100 people on the Zoom platform that I have, and we had about 50 people. But what was really interesting was we had 
families from around the world participate. And the hard part for me as a facilitator was trying to allow them to have that conversation and yet still do the sing-along. We had to mute everybody because everyone's time delay and stuff. But I got an email like two days after from a man who says, we're on the 29th viewing. And he sent me a picture of his wife standing in front of the TV watching. And so we're going we're gonna to do a few other things differently to that, um, that I've heard from feedback that um, really, I guess, resonated and made them not feel alone just by calling out a name or doing some clapping and some people would start at that time. Real little, little teeny weeny things, but the gratitude that was expressed was incredible. And then, you know, I edited the best I could and I showed some of our you know, talking over one another too, because I wanted to show there was excitement of just gathering or people going, oh, I could do this. I didn't think I could even do this, you know? And so they were just excited about being introduced to a different type of technology. I think it's wonderful, you know, all of the stuff you're doing. I loved when you were talking about the home family and love, because to me, what COVID is giving us back and we've always used the term person-centered, we are getting relationship-based again. It's not just about the task. We know the importance of how we, how we do a task is really priority to, uh, to basically everybody. It, it makes everybody feel different about the job they're doing. It makes the resident feel different, and it makes, it makes the family feel different and more secure, more comfortable, more part of a team. And um, you know, Dorinda, you had talked about tapping into staff talents that you didn't know. I, I, I think now is a time of creativity and, you know, loosening in some ways some of our regulations to get back to really, really mattering. When I started in healthcare, gosh, 40, 40 some years ago, um, it was very relationship based. And over time, it's gotten so structured. And so everybody's got to jot this note here and there. And not that we don't need that, but I, but I do believe we have to teach our surveyors of what's important when it comes to quality of life and to re retain our staff because, you know, people are scared if they, you know, missed a checkbox that it's over for them. And, and that has to change because we're so tight in terms of people feeling valued in these positions and when they're allowed to be creative and, you know, sing a song or, you know, knit a prayer shawl or, you know, make masks or whatever they're doing, that lifts people up. And I, I also feel that there are many, many ways for communities um, serving those with dementia and just our communities at large to serve but they have to be directed as to how, because there are many talents out in our communities that would be tapped, but they don't know that it's okay to step forward. Or even if they do, who the heck do I talk to? And will somebody call me back, uh, you know, because they're busy. And so I think there's great, great opportunity. So thank you for sharing all your, all you're doing. Um, Gus, appreciate it. Uh, Ian, let's go to you, and we'll we'll see what's going on across the pond and around the world. Okay. I really enjoyed both of your uh, talks just now. I mean, there's lessons learned for everybody there, so well done. It's really heartwarming. Uh, I know you're uh, a thousands of miles away, but um, I can feel that sort of expression of that word we don't use enough now, love and uh, support for people. I think it might be helpful if I just set the scene for the UK because I'm, you know, uh, just give you some numbers, figures and what we're doing. Well, as I say, we're about four weeks coming to the end of the fourth week of lockdown. Um, I think the heroes are coming through now are our national health staff, our social care staff, our lorry drivers delivering goods, the police, the fire, the, the um, what we call the, you know, the the uh, places where you buy food, our shopping centers, etc. those still carrying on. And uh, it's, they're not only just carrying on, they're going the extra mile, all of them. And it's wonderful to hear the stories about the NHS and, uh, and the social care that's going on. 
our hospitals had to really gear up quickly so that they had the capacity to take people. And I'm pleased to say that uh, the numbers at the moment in where I am are fine. They're low. Well, just the loss of one person is extremely sad, but we haven't reached that sort of massive figure we were thinking about. Um, I think on the other side, I just give a national view on we get briefed every night. It used to be by the prime minister, but um, uh, he has COVID. And so he was uh, uh, away uh, from the, the office. But we get briefed by a secretary of state and also the lead scientific advisor uh, on COVID. And a third person every evening, it could be last night, uh, it was the armed forces because the armed forces have swung into action and built uh, Nightingale hospitals uh, and which to take up the... Um, um, increase the capacity for dealing with the um, COVID illness. Um, I think that has provided a sense of, I don't know if this is the right word, but, you know, the community coming together at least once a day, looking at what's going on. Uh, are we succeeding? Is lockdown working? What are the numbers and what have you? And also uh, to be briefed uh, on what financial um, uh, help is available to business uh, companies because you know a lot of our companies have furloughed their staff uh, which will have a massive effect so there are uh, sums of money available to do that um, moving on I think the the figures I just want to give you the figures that uh, our death rate and so to date in the United Kingdom we have 19,506 recorded deaths every one of them is a tragedy in, and if I bring that down in England, 17,373, Scotland, 1,184, Wales, 751. Northern Ireland have declared this evening, but you can see the figures are there. Um, and I think, you know, that the shock of hearing those numbers, I remember four weeks ago, somebody saying, well, at least 20,000 people have died. You think, what? Really? And now we're actually seeing that come to fruition. Um, I think you know, before I move on to one of the biggest things I'm seeing and what I don't want us to lose sight of, not only in the United Kingdom, but across the world, is that sense of caring for each other. And, you know, I just hope that when all this is over, that when they take the brakes off, we go back to where we were before. I just hope that we've learned that bit about I care for this person. They're a human being. They're special. They're unique, and there's never ever going to be another person like that person. If we use that in all the way where we work, how we integrate in our social life, I think we'll be a better planet for it. Um, I think the other thing which is quite interesting, for the first time for years, the Queen actually spoke to United Kingdom, and that had a real, I think, uh, moment of gelling you know, to see this uh, 94-year-old monarch actually saying how um, it, had, um, it was affecting the communities, etc., etc. Uh, and so that, that was quite a moment, I think. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to overdo that moment, but I think it was. And then in Scotland, uh, Gus, we have um, Nicola Sturgeon briefing every night with her team and same in Wales. So, uh, and I think the other thing that is really um, quite emotional sometimes is people coming out on the streets on a Thursday evening at eight o'clock to clap, cheer, sing, goodness knows what else. Uh, and, you know, there's that sense of, and, and where I live, you know, we hang out the windows and shout. And I mean, it's only a lane in rural Devon. But it's amazing how long we carry on chatting till the light disappears, you know. And uh, so, yeah, there's some fantastic things going on. I think some of the challenges uh, are clearly about what you've been speaking about. But also, if I take it outside the um, residential sector and bring it into the community, carers uh, before this were, most of them, on their knees were caring for their loved one, with the amount of hours they put in. You know, caring, you know as well as the people listening, that caring for a person with dementia is a 24-hour day, 365 days a year. And, you know, but sometimes you get breaks with respite, daycare and activities outside the home. That is gone, 
you know, and so what fills that gap? And um, having talked to carers, they're saying, well, you know, how do I keep uh, my partner, my family member, etc., cetera, uh, active? And also they don't understand that they can't go out. And so that is a challenge. And it's a challenge, I think, is affecting all of us, not just here in the United Kingdom. Um, and I throw another issue into that is the urban-rural split. If you live in a, a, a rural community, it's very difficult sometimes to get services. And so I'm pleased to say that our town and parish councils, parish councils are our lowest form of government here in uh, England. And I've got 10,000 questionnaires out at the moment asking them what is it they put in place to support vulnerable people? in their communities. And I was quite amazed in the first week, the return on those 10,000 is massive. Uh, so whilst it would be uh, a bit of a headache to analyze it all, it's wonderful to see what's going on uh, around the country. Um, I think the other thing that's happened is, is the rethinking how we do things for people in communities. And the whole um, package of social uh, support is uh, interesting. Uh, local authorities, through their, they've set up hubs with the health and social care where they're ringing people just to check they're okay. Um, do they need support? Do they? Um, where? How can this be provided uh, in a way that's safe, both for them but also for the people who might be delivering their um, groceries, um, etc., medication. Now that is. Uh, that is a lifeline for a lot of people. And, and whilst it's only uh, seems simple, it is a lifeline to them. Uh, the other thing we're doing nationally, uh, and I think, and it's actually, I think it's mirrors what you're doing, um, Laurie, is that um, we've got people called champions uh, from the Alzheimer's Society who are checking in and it doesn't matter how long you're on the phone. You know, they can chat on about everything and anything. And so that is providing some support. We're also inviting members of the public to become pen pals to write to people in residential care. Now, that isn't just a letter. It can be a card. It can be, it can be anything that actually stimulates the person to say, hey, yes, you're in residential care. Uh, but there are people on the outside who are caring about you and um there's this, this is a sort of a sign of how that care is being uh, put forward. We're also delivering quite a lot of dementia uh, pamphlets, uh, exercises, whatever you want to call them, to young people, so to children in families. So they, it's, it's a sort of a, um, I suppose, a simpler version of the Dementia Friends type program. So that is, you know, so that they have an understanding about what's going on. Uh, and the other thing we're doing, which I, I think is quite interesting, it's um, similar to you, Laurie, we're using uh, singing for memory, singing for the brain uh, across the um, networks. And I'm trying to get the BBC at the moment to start that on local radio, uh, where you can dial and sing. Uh, so you dial in to say, I'd love to hear this song sung, etc., etc. So that's going on. But I suppose what, what fascinates me about all of this is the inventiveness of our communities to support each other in this very, very difficult, challenging time. Um, I think the other challenges that have been um, highlighted is the amount of um, domestic abuse, and that is um, providing uh, you know, an awful lot of... Uh, people to actually get involved how do you um protect somebody etc etc so you know relationships that were strained before are even more strained at the moment so um but on the whole uh, just looking at the way that um you're doing things in america i think we're more or less mirroring but i do like some of the ideas that i've heard today finally as a research team because we've uh, are used to uh, uh, interviewing, talking to uh, people with dementia and their families, we'd offered our services to the local hub where we will uh, take on 
telephone calls, which perhaps would last a lot longer than they would normally do through the ring and round system. So we can get into sort of um, how are you a bit more than that. And so we're offering that. Um, uh, what, am, what am I optis, optimistic about? I'm optimistic about uh, people. I do think people, you know, when you dig underneath it, there is a sense of community and that sense of community, I think, I hope that we won't lose when they uh, use a, a term from the 1940s, when the lights go back on again in London and uh, we're back to some sort of normality in our lives. But I think the heroes, and I'm sure they're the same in the United States, are our workers in hospitals, care homes, uh, social work settings, the lorry drivers, the supermarket people who are there for us. And I, I just, you know, I go to the supermarket. I'm, I'm classed as an old vulnerable person. I am. <laughs> I, I tend not to run up and down the aisles because they might think I'm on something. Uh, but you know, the the way that they treat me, the way they talk to me, is totally different. It's totally different than five weeks ago. I am a, an individual and I'm using that resource. And it sounds like Gus and, and yourselves in America are doing that. Uh, so uh, power to your elbows, all of you. Wonderful. I, I love the, the overview that you gave. So, so thank you. I, and I think we're getting some great ideas from you. I, I've heard communities doing the, the pen pals and the calls. And just like you said, it doesn't have to take a lot of time or some right. of the schools are tapping into the kids um, to, to send stuff. I'm thinking with May Day coming up, I mean, they could even kids, you know, you could coordinate kids to come and even tape flowers to the outside of the window you know, on the first floor, you know, for people. And it might be a little more work for maintenance later on, but would cheer them up. Or uh, I have a friend, I thought this was really interesting, but, you know, we see on the news all the time, people coming to the the um, the resident's uh, window on the first floor. Well, her mom was on the second floor and she ended up passing, but her brother a couple of times brought a big ladder and climbed up to see his mom. Now, they probably didn't know that was happening because of liability and stuff, but you know, what if a community rented up, you know, a cherry picker and rose people up, you know, you rent it for a day and just let them be able to physically see their loved one. You know, it would it would be a ride, you could, you know, I mean, you could play it a lot of different ways and stuff or um even, you know, summers coming up here in um in the states with still doing picnics, you know, with social distancing or delivering, you know, that hamburger um, to the room and stuff. And then maybe having something going on around the outside with entertainment in different places. I, again, I think the creativity is massive. I think the virtual connections are um, really important. I, I have another um, gal who they joined us, her and her husband are at home and he has dementia and she got back to me the next day and she said, you know, I, I really want to know where that video is because he was so happy. And so I think one of the things that can be happening with those who have a loved one at home is really, really getting in that place of what's important and seeing that smile and that contentment. She said that just made not only his day, but mine. So for family members to realize that um, they can be in that same space of peace with their loved one if they stop worrying about all this other stuff that they can't control. And, and I think that that's a beautiful lesson to learn. Uh, you know, COVID to me is much like dementia. You can't control it. You can't, you know, you, you can't really fix it. You know, we don't have that option. So it teaches us that there's a great opportunity to be spontaneous and go with the flow. And um, for me, I used to be a um, caregiver with options A, B, C, D, and more. You know, I was always, I was always prepared. But I learned that 
you know, over time, took me longer than I, I, I wish it would have. But I finally, it, it sunk into my brain that no matter what happens and no matter how prepared you are, you're going to have to reanalyze that plan anyways. So just know that you have the knowledge and the ability and whatever comes in front of you, you're, you're going to come up with a plan and you're going to come up with the best possible plan you can. And then let the guilt go, let, let all the other stuff go so that you can enjoy more of these moments you know, with people. Um, I also have a, uh, a man in my uh, um, memory cafe, and he actually bought another iPad that is now set up in his wife's room. She doesn't have to touch it. She doesn't have to do anything, but he can just beam in and see her. And he can talk to her, and sometimes she'll talk back, but sometimes not. But for him, he said, it just heals his heart just to be able to have that connection in it. It only had to be set up once by the staff and you know, it doesn't, it doesn't ding. So it's not confusing. The only thing she'll hear is his voice and see his face if you know, and it's, it's stationary, but I thought that was kind of a cool, cool idea there too, in terms of comfort and it in, and maybe that in itself will give, some staff and communities peace with these cameras being in place because I think everyone thinks there are spy cameras to catch staff doing things wrong. And, you know, families just want to know that they can connect with their loved one and that they're cared for. And the, the primary purpose um, isn't always um, to catch in the act of doing something wrong, but maybe that'll help shift in terms of how we, how we use some of these things. Um, Gus, I'm just going to ask you if you have any um, any comments you want to um, make after hearing everybody. Um, it's, it's inspiring to know that um, we may be doing our own individual things in our own corner of the world, but we fight the same fight. We're literally all, uh, our shoulders are at the same wheel. And uh, Ian, you're, you're so right to kind of mention the, the, the sense that we're, where people, uh, the relationships that people share, if they endure in a new way that is more respectful, more dignified, then we can we can come up with some something positive out of uh, this crisis. And Laurie, you you mentioned the the uh, the fun, the the uh, art, the the kind of life that can happen in new ways. Um, I'll tell one other little story about the community here. Pre this crisis, we had uh, we have a Scottish cultural centre here and a dance studio. A group of Highland dancers come in once and twice a week to rehearse, and through their regular visits, they've got to know our staff and residents very closely. And um, we've seen many of them grow up through the years they immediately missed their routine visits, uh, missed seeing Betty or, or Angelo or whomsoever was here. And so they, they immediately, without us asking for it, created uh, a pen pal uh, correspondence with resident to dancer, one-on-one -on -one with photographs being exchanged. And here's what I'm doing at school this week or in my life. These are the things that are happening. And then without much of a warning, with a bagpiper, the dancers showed up and in our gardens, outside resident windows and in our courtyards, danced for their residents. And it would have just moved the most stoic of us to tears. Um, I just was incredibly moved and touched by the thoughtfulness. Um, they were, again, socially distancing, but it really brought a sense of connections beyond the crisis uh, that these these relationships existed before covid-19 despite covid-19 and after covid-19 person to person we will get through this together love that story Dorinda, how about you? Any any last comments? Well, I've, been, I've just been stringing together all of the, like, the key words that we've had throughout the um, 
this little meeting. And so I kept thinking about how we've all had to adapt, how we've had to bring forth creativity, um, but and then the home, family, and love. But I think one thing that we have to still keep in our in the back of our mind is that we all have a passion for what we're doing, and that's what's going to create a quality of life even during times like this. So kudos to everybody for um, championing their way through um, being some kind of a healthcare provider. Ian, how about you? Any last comments? Uh, I, I think uh, I may echo the comments that already said. I just sort of back it up. I think, you know, if we, the lessons learned from this are obviously there's lots of medical and et cetera, et cetera. The big one is the human bit, the humanistic approach that we have for each other. And, uh, you know, I'm, when I go for a walk, I, I obviously have to walk on the other side of the lane, but I see people and I stop and talk. I wouldn't have done that. They wouldn't have done that to me either. There's some commonality. We're in this together. Uh, and I don't want to lose that. And I get quite emotional inside thinking about that. And um, and I've seen it, you know, throughout the city of Plymouth that, um, yeah. I mean, people stand and clap as an ambulance goes past. You know, we're in a different world. And don't let's forget it. Uh, these lessons, you know, I always remember my grandfather going on to me, said, oh, during the war, we worked together. And I thought, silly old thing. But now I know what he meant. And, uh, you know, and it's wonderful. I'd have loved to have been there to hear that piper. Um, I only get to hear the piper on Burns Night once a year. And uh, by the time that he's playing, I've, um, I've definitely had some malt whiskey. So it even sounds better. If I can just say one thing to all of us here to, today, I think it's been a privilege to talk to you three. Um, I feel very privileged to be part of this small group. And um, if you ever need an old man to talk again, I'm ready. Okay. Thank you. And um, Gus? I, I wanted to say one one other thing, and it, it's taking my cue from, from Ian. Uh, the word hero is a very important one that we, we need to, to recognize that at this time, the people who are fighting at the front lines of the war with COVID are in every shape and form heroes. I, when, when we first got into this, I got our team together and I said, I want to make a personal commitment to each one of you. I will, you will only find me in one of two places, here or in my home. If we can minimize the number of places we're going, between now and the end of this crisis, we will protect one another. My, my commitment to you is that I will do everything I can to protect the health and safety of the, the people who live and work here. And when I say that the door of the Scottish home, this is the only time in the 107 years that it's been closed and locked. My job is to tell the world that behind that locked door, I see the best of humanity. I see people doing whatever needs to be done to make sure one another and the residents are happy, comfortable, and that they feel, I'll use those three words again, home, family, and love. That's truly heroic. And I'm just going to wrap up uh, here by, by saying thank you to everyone. Um, you guys are doing brilliant work. And, and one of the things that I think our listeners can do is to say thank you. Say thank you to people. If it's write a note, if it's to call a community or a service or an individual and just say thank you. Um, that is powerful stuff. Or, you know, you could donate gift cards. Some people I have heard are making food and just bringing it in or having it delivered for staff. There's lots of different things that we can do. Um, or maybe it's a donation to a community to increase um, something to help them with their engagement for, for residents, for staff. I, I just think it's, I think there's so much we can all do by tapping into what it is we have, um, what our talents are, and letting people know that we're available to serve. And, and hopefully that will be harnessed and, and lifted 
and shared because every every night you know on the tv um and i don't know if they do this um over in the uk but you know we're we're seeing these these stories of hope of gratitude of ingenuity of creativity of connectiveness uh, and people love seeing those things it's a horrible thing that we're going through but if we can shift the scariness into opportunities and look at all of the really cool, fabulous things that are happening, you know, to me, that's a miracle in and of itself. And hopefully we can harness that and move forward and just add value into the services that we provide and, and become more humane, more inclusive. So thank you all for your time today. I really so appreciate it. So in wrapping up, I just want to thank all of our listeners. Um, I appreciate your likes, your clicks, your shares. I think this was a fascinating conversation, and I hope that you'll share it with your sphere as well. There's some great ideas here, and you probably have some as well. And if you're interested in being a guest on our next COVID special, please let me know. Or maybe you just want to be a guest on one of our regular Alzheimer's Speak shows. We'd love to have you. Just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. There's a big contact button and you can reach out to me. Talk soon. Stay safe. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.